tomorrow's not promised. And I learned that watching my mom pass over 14 years slowly. And even though it's not promised, you may be here. Like she was sick, but I see some people who haven't done anything and they're the same. They're in the same place they were a year ago, five years ago. That scares me to death. That scares me so much because life is short and whatever your purpose is, don't let tomorrow come and you haven't taken one step towards it. Don't let the day pass without doing that. Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, an exploration of flight, the human spirit, and what it means to fly, metaphorically and literally. Each week, you can hear a different conversation. Each voice is singular, but together, we celebrate taking on challenges and reaching beyond predetermined limits, often in the face of uncertainty, fear, doubt, and other impediments. If you too have ever been fascinated by leaving the pull of gravity, of domesticity, conformity, and the tyranny of expectations, for freedom, possibility, and a dogged determination to know yourself, you are in the right place. We dive deep into what it takes to navigate fear, ultimately redefining what is possible, all while building a community around the empowering metaphor of flight. Because where there is flight, there is freedom. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, artist, runner, mother, wife, one who knows fear as an energizer and an obstacle. I'm here with you so that together we can learn and access reserves of our own self-realization that go way beyond the physical. I believe that when we share our stories, we start to see that maybe, just maybe, When we own our fears and dismantle our perceived limitations, the possibilities are boundless. If you have been around, you know that I have a preoccupation with the many ways we fly. And if you are new, welcome. Here is a conversation that you are just going to love. Today, I talked to Michelle Snow, now retired after 16 stellar years in pro basketball. Perhaps Michelle is best known by becoming an overnight sensation when she was the first woman to dunk in a nationally televised basketball game, and then the third woman in the NCAA college basketball history to dunk during a game, and the first to dunk in a WNBA All-Star game. A dunk, a shot in basketball made by leaping high into the air and slamming the ball down through the hoop from above with one or both hands, and is rarely done by women in games a reflection of social norms and expectations, not talent or potential. So that's interesting. Listen to what this means to Michelle. What you also need to know about Michelle is that she is driven by a strong sense of family, entrepreneurship, and social justice. You will hear many examples of this from her relationship with her mother to speaking up against bullying on the court in Korea. We talk about her mission to empower underserved communities and what it means to be raised in a trailer park and how she has evolved into a game changer with numerous accolades, a professional speaking career, and multiple business opportunities. Now, today, Michelle looks to take the leadership skills she has learned while playing professionally to corporate America at Nike. And where we really dive deep in this conversation is in the question of how to move from dreams to strategy to execution. Does that resonate with you? How the heck do we harness that dream, make a strategy, and make the steps required for operation and delivery? When Michelle was a young girl, there was no Women's National Basketball League. Her dream could have been seen as having nowhere to go. But that is not Michelle. Her dreams have wings. And with a laser focus on big time, nothing stopped her. This conversation has the chance of rocking you a bit or a lot, rocking your sense of what is possible and rocking your assumption about who has access to making big dreams come true. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's jump in. Michelle Snow. Okay, Michelle, I am so delighted to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So we are going to talk about your story and basketball and entrepreneurship. But first, I'd love you to take us into your background. Tell us what you were like as a kid and what influenced you. Let's see. As a kid, I was probably wherever my dad was, I was trying to go from the day I was born. I was the oldest, so I was spoiled. And then four more siblings came along, so that quickly changed. It was interesting to get a taste of what it's like to grow up alone. I don't remember it because my brother came 10 months later. Like, (laughs) I couldn't get in. I just couldn't get a minute. But I'm the oldest of five, two military parents. They met in Germany and relocated back to my father's hometown, which is a very small hometown in the panhandle of Florida. If you know Florida's like this, we are right, I'm talking about, we are falling off the map, okay? Almost in Alabama, 30 minutes and you're in Alabama. But it's beautiful beaches, a very close-knit family, Sunday dinners where 50, 60 people may show up. And my grandparents are cooking. Garden is in the back, so everything is fresh. There's more than enough to take home a plate to go. And you have all of your cousins and family members around. So it was beautiful because family became very important to me at a very early age. And that's really how we grew up. After we had dinner, everyone went around to the park and we would play basketball. And that's where my love of basketball started. I would run up and down the court and they'd get mad because I was too little and I was going to get hurt. And I didn't care. I would keep running. The ladies of the family would always tell me to come over and (laughs) and I'm just like, "Uh, no, I want to play. Daddy's playing. I want to (laughs) play. And as I got bigger and bigger, they would let me play. And I'll tell you this, they didn't take it easy on me at all. They would intentionally try to run me over. So I would go sit down and then I would just stand there and keep running. And they'd be like, listen, this is the rule. You want to be out here? You can't cry. And I was like, okay, okay. And no one is taking it easy on you either. So if you're out here, you're going to get hit. <laughs> so why don't you go over there and sit down? No. <laughs> Daddy's out here. I'm going to be out here, period. And there were some battles. So imagine doing that from a very young age and then getting to middle school and high school. And I was just like, oh, wow, these girls can't jump that high. Like, oh, they're not as strong. They're, oh, like I, my dad didn't give me much harder licks. And as I got older, the licks got harder. I didn't, they were taking it easy on me, although they said they weren't. But it taught me something, one, to adapt because I ended up jumping just as high, eventually dunking the basketball and doing things that had never been done before. And it's kind of my version of being able to fly. And it came from them teaching me that you can do it but don't make excuses in the process. That was their one thing, no matter what it was. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Do it as as well as you can. And you can't put those barriers around yourself like, oh, I'm a girl, so take it easy on me. Or I'm a girl, so let me score. They never allowed that. They forced me to realize that whatever it was going to be, you were going to give it your all. And if you couldn't get your all, go sit down. Right. If you're going to be on the court, then you're going to play with these rules and we're not going to dumb down our game. Yes. And I have taken care of my uncles forever because of that. Like I spoil them every chance I get. They gave me the tough love that I needed to change how I thought about life and different things. Mm-hmm. It's like early tough love training to, to give you lots of grit to move into the next steps and have dreams that were seemed to outsize what you thought was possible, but you didn't let that hold you back. When did basketball as a profession start to be something that you had in your vision? This is going to be crazy, but I remember watching Michael Jordan win his sixth ring and jumping up and down. His dad had just passed and he was so excited. And I was maybe 10 or 11, maybe. And we're watching it on um, TV. And I just remember saying, oh, this game is pretty fun. Like he's pro, I'm going to go pro. And my dad is like, you know, there's no pro league for women. And I was like, well, there has to be something like I'm going to go overseas and play or I'm going to go wherever I can play. I don't care if it's not here. And, you know, parents are like, kids not going overseas, whatever. Yeah, right. They'll learn that someday. She's just talking. And they were like, but you could play in college. And I don't know why they told me that. And I looked at my mom and I said, mom, this is around the time my mom was getting sick, but we didn't know what was wrong with her. So 
we would always just kind of take everything she said with a grain of salt and be like, mom is always encouraging us. And she would be like, sweetheart, I graduated with two degrees with straight A's. If you want to play basketball and get into college, you're going to get there academically. Now, whether you get there athletically, that depends on how hard you work. And I was like, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to get 17 scholarships. And she said, okay, you could do that. Not one time did she flinch. Not one time did she say that's unrealistic. You can't do that. Do you know how hard it is to get one? So a lot of the things I would say as a kid are things most people would tell their kid, you know, be a little more realistic. That is something I've been told my entire life. You should be a little more realistic. And the funny part is I've done everything I said I was going to do because I already know that it's possible and that most people don't even believe it. So half the competition is already gone. Yeah. If you don't step into the arena, there's no way you're going to win. Exactly. Fast forward to high school. The WNBA comes into existence with the 96 Olympics right after they win the gold here in Atlanta. The WNBA starts in 98. I'm graduating as a senior, getting ready to go to the number one college in the country. I now have an opportunity to stay home and play right in front of my family and fans and get paid to do it. I'm excited. And I get ready to sign to go to college. And I bring a box with 150 letters and I put it in front of my mom. And I said, Mom, I did it. I got 150 plus scholarships. I said, I stopped counting at 150, you know, whatever. And she burst into tears. Like, I'm just like, okay, I did it. I told you I was going to do it. I went way past the number I gave you. Cocky kid, didn't know any better. She burst into tears and my heart drops because I'm scared. Like, is something wrong? Is she sick? I'm really scared. And she's just like, oh my God. And she's just crying. And she's like, these are tears of joy because I'm sitting there holding her like, what's wrong? Mom, what's wrong? Are you okay? Do I need to call the doctor? And she's just, just shaking, crying. And she's just like, my goodness, baby, you could do anything. You could do absolutely anything. Never forget that. And it was one of those moments where a lot of things that people would say and do, because people would tell me I was one of the best players in my city. And they would tell me, you're not special. You're a young black girl. You'll be pregnant before you graduate high school. You know, don't think so highly of yourself. And my mom would always tell me, be you. And whatever you want to do, put your mind to it. And then she would always make me go look it up on the computer. Go look it up. And computers were super slow. So I was sitting there for at least two hours. Took an hour for a, a page to load. And she would make me look up what the steps were, what the process was. Reverse engineering it. And I would be like, okay, how do you get to college? And I sent all of these schools a hundred questions. What's your graduation rate? How much playing time goes across all players? Do you have any, the medical program? Because I was pre-med coming into college. And a lot of schools didn't even re- take the time to fill it out. Very few. So I knocked most of them off on that. And it told me how much effort and time you were going to put on, into me when I got there. I didn't know that no one does that, that no kid going to college does that. The schools interview you. I right, you. right, right. Most students don't go in interviewing the college, but you wanted to be pre-med. Tell me about that. Well, because my mother was sick. There was something called the Health Academy. It was, I know you've heard of International Baccalaureate, the IB program. Underneath it was the Health Academy, which was geared toward kids, magnet school for kids that wanted to be doctors. My mother's sick. You know, I'm going to throw that on the agenda too. I'm going to solve it. That's the kid I was. I'm going to solve it. I'll figure it out. And that's where that dream came from. I ended up giving it up. The school I went to did not have a medical program, but they were the number one school in the country. And I knew if I went there, instead of getting the bills from school and post-med, because I want to be a brain surgeon, 12 years after college, you got to go and stay in school. If I went to this school, she promised me if I wanted to go to med school afterwards and I didn't get to the pros, they would, they would foot the bill because I would no longer be an amateur athlete at that point. And I was like, okay. So I went ahead and went to that school and I ended up going pro. I think she knew that was going to happen anyway. I didn't. Ended up going to the pros and she was like, you can now take care of your mother. The first time I dunked, she was like, you just went pro. I just want you to know that. You're officially going pro. Everyone knows your name and who you are. You will have a shot at taking care of your mom. It came from knowing she was ill, something was wrong, and still not knowing what it was. We didn't find out until right before I went to school that it was lupus. Yeah, one of those things that's hard to diagnose and that sort of, yeah, chips away at a lot of wellness and health. So what do you think made you strive for the greatness and continuous growth 
and progression? Were there specific influences? Was it something inside of you, combination of both? Combination of, of both. I think I've always been taught to dream big by my mom. She always encourages everything that we say and do. She would put us in different groups and organizations to ex- so that we could explore what we wanted to do. And as an educator, she knew exposure was important. And then as she became sick, it was kind of like, okay, I got to figure this out. She's taught me enough. I know what to do. I know that I can do it. And I know how to do it because she'd already set those steps in place. And she was always encouraging me along the way, even when she was sick. She was at every game that she could be at. And when she wasn't there, when I walked through the door, she was waiting for the newspaper. And I would sit there until 11, 30, 12, until they brought the next day's paper. And I could hand it to her so I could bring it home with me. And she, the look in her eyes, she'd be so proud. It drove me. And I was like, this gives her some sunshine in a very bad situation. And as you know, with lupus, you're in remission one minute for three months. You're okay the next three months. And it's like nothing's wrong. So when she was able to be there, she was there and would sit behind the other team's coach and taunt them. Y'all are gonna lose. And it was the (laughs) cutest thing ever because. The other teams, coach, they all laughed and like none of them took it the wrong way. None of them got mad. They would always go introduce themselves and hug her and they would just laugh and they'd be like, my baby's been working day and night. And <laughs> they would just laugh. But she didn't know anything about basketball. So I would score be like, good rebound. And they would just turn around and be like, she really just loves her kid because she knows exactly. nothing about the game of basketball. She's going to cheer if you go in the opposite direction, right? Yeah. <laughs> and was she also tall? My mom was 5'10", so tall for a woman. 5'10", my father's 6'2". All of my siblings are 6'2", except for one. You know, there's always a runt in the family. She's like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, and we're like, what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> but we have a tall family. I even had a seven-foot uncle. So I think it's a combination of all of that, and I got to 6'5". Wow. And I heard that you got from 5'5 five, five to 6'5 five in, five in one year. In one year. Oh, my goodness. One year between my eighth and ninth grade year going into high school. Wow. For most women, that would be traumatizing. For me, it was like I went back to school and I was like, what happened to y'all? Why didn't you guys grow? <laughs> what happened? You thought they shrank? <laughs> I grew. Why didn't y'all grow? Our men's basketball team was like 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, so mind you, it wasn't like I was the tallest person either. We had Three other ladies come into high school. One was 6'1". She's my best friend to this day. Two were twins, 6'2", 6'3". And then there was another young lady in the school that was 6'2". Our entire lineup was over six feet. Wow. Tallest lineup in the country. We thought it was normal. We had no earthly idea that this was not normal. (laughs) I just feel like my life was full of a lot of things that weren't normal that just worked in my favor. And I think some of it was the belief. I think I planted that seed when I was very, very young. And everything else just kind of fell into place. I could have easily been the runt in the family. But even the runt played basketball. My sister Ross, five eight five nine. all of us played and all of us were good. I think it was just, it was going to work out no matter what because it was in here. And we believed it up here. Was there ever a time in your career when you thought about giving up the game or not continuing to push yourself? I could not. That was not an option for me. For me, it was, I know I can go to school academically but I can also get athletic scholarships or walk on, at least help fund my, I knew my parents couldn't do it with the medical bills and my mom being sick. For me, it was no choice. I didn't have the option of even thinking like that. I also believe that's why I made it. And that's why I've been so successful. When you don't have a way out, you figure it out. And I think too many times we have the option of whether we get up and work out, whether we get up and we work on our business. And when our backs are against the wall, all of a sudden, Going to work eight hours and coming home and working on your business for three or four is no longer a problem. We get content. I didn't have that luxury when I got to come home every day and look at my mom. Mm-hmm. And that really motivated, motivated you. Do you have any advice for your younger self or what would you tell yourself now knowing what you know? Oh my goodness. I would tell her to dream even bigger. I really would. I would tell her to dream even bigger. Because everything I said I've done, and I've had to go back and rewrite all of my visions and create the visions for the next half of my my life. From, I mean, I wrote poetry every day as a kid. I journaled every day. So I would write these things down. I didn't know at the time 
every successful person, most of them do that. So I didn't know, like I was really writing it down and putting it out into the universe. A lot of people don't believe in manifestations. I didn't. I didn't believe in them. I was like, whatever. Till I got to the Olympic team and everyone in the locker room was manifesting. And everyone in there had their eyes closed. And they were envisioning the game. And I watched how they played. And they were kicking my butt. I realized then, okay, maybe I should adopt this practice. (laughs) There's something to it. Every single morning I get up and do it. I write every morning. I read something for 15 minutes every morning. I create and start my day on the note that I want it to start on. So it's my morning routine. It brings a huge smile to my face. I'm happy, joyful. I have gratitude because I think of three things I'm grateful for. And sometimes I write a letter to someone that's made a difference in my life. And it always keeps me, even at the hardest times when I want to give up, I can't forget all the people that I made a difference in their lives who've said, seeing and hearing your story made me rethink what was possible in my life. And sometimes those are older people. Sometimes they're younger people. That's why I tell my story and I share it. So your manifestations, you write down every morning as part of your routine? I do affirmations every morning. I meditate every morning. My vision, I know what it is. I can tell you off the top of my life. I could just go through it in detail from what my house, the acres, everything. I know what it is. Yeah, tell us. So 22 acres is where it's going to start. It has went to 222 acres. The number two is my number. <laughs> that was by Jersey Plain. It, I see number two everywhere. I know everything's going to work out. I can walk through that gate. I see the car, the matching cars with me and my spouse, the helipad. I see the home with all glass on the back side of it overlooking the water down in the back. And we have two offices up top. So they have their office. I have mine, the bathroom with an artist who has come in and done a painting on the back wall with the huge tub that drops in. There's a TV so I can work while I take bubble baths. I love bubble baths. <laughs> They're relaxing after a hard game. Trust me. It's a way to recoup, throw the Epsom salt in there. I can at least get myself back in place. I can see it all. The cabanas on the back by the pool, all of the trees growing up. There's a little garden to walk through. Me and my dad are actually going to build that lake out in the back, a small little koi pond, put the koi ponds and the turtles in there. I can see every, every bit of it. The pool runs over. You can't see that from the ocean. And what are you doing in your office up there? Oh, my goodness. So at this point, once I'm here, I don't even have to work the hours that I do now. I'm just going in there for a few hours, three to four hours. Then I go to lunch with my spouse, spend time with the kids, all my nieces and nephews, my daughter jump on the plane, go to lunch, come back. By the time the kids are out of school, put in a couple of hours with them, making sure they're the focus point. They have all the attention, exposing them to different things. Like I was exposed because exposure changed my life. I think that when people meet different cultures, been to 22 countries, all the different cultures and people have changed how I thought and how I think to this day. I want to spend time and have my foundation be able to do that on a bigger level for more people. There are so many people in my hometown, we're right on the beach, no more than 15 minutes from the beach who've never been because they don't have a way there or their parents are working two and three jobs. I think that's crazy. Yeah. I want to definitely want to talk about your experiences abroad. Let's start first with your experiences in the U.S. and becoming the first woman to dunk in a nationally televised game and why that was significant. Really, I'd really love to dive into why dunking for a woman was significant, is significant, and what that felt like for you. You're asking the same question I asked. I was just on the playground (laughs) as a kid. The guys were dunking, and you know, in middle school, the goals were only eight feet. So when I grew, it became really easy. And I was like, oh, this is fun. We're just out there just having fun. I don't know. Once again, girls don't dunk, girls shouldn't be doing this. We're just all out there having fun. The guys aren't saying don't do it. They're like, oh, wow, cool. Let's see what you can do next. Let's do this. And we're just having fun. Get to high school. My high school coach sees me out there trying to do the same thing on a 10-foot goal. And she's laughing. And she's like, if you want to dunk, get in the weight room. And she never said, girls can't dunk. You can't do that. None of that comes out of the people's mouths that are the most influential. And she just made me do a workout program. Mind you, she was just trying to get me stronger for the basketball court, but knew that was the way to get me to work hard. And it worked like a charm. The guys team, they would all be like, take a tennis ball because the basket was higher. Take a tennis ball. Take a t-shirt. Okay, now try a volleyball. 
they didn't discourage me either. They thought it was the coolest thing in the world. It wasn't until I got my first dunk and someone came to interview and said I was trying to be a man. And I was in my coach's locker. I was like in her office crying. And I was like, why would she write that? Why would she say a woman wrote the article and came to the school, took the pictures. And I'm like, okay, this is exciting. This is fun. And the only reason I wanted to do it is the fans would go crazy. They just would jump out of their seats. The arena would explode. You're talking about 10, 20,000 people going bananas. It's the best thing in the world. Like it, It's a, an adrenaline rush for them. Even the opposing team, they would be cheering and asking me to dunk. So it was just for fun. And it was something that would just, it was different. And I, I didn't realize at the time I like challenges. And I love doing things people say I can't do. And I didn't know it back then. So I would always challenge myself, make everybody in the gym go crazy. Yeah. So it was a surprise to you that when that was televised, that you had this reaction of it being that you were doing an unladylike thing. Yes, that's exactly how it was posed. Which is awesome, actually. Congratulations for being called unladylike. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a surprise, right? What is sort of a, a crazy indication of like how messed up things are. And then and really how, I guess it also reflects how in the sport, there were clearly women who weren't ever encouraged to. It doesn't sound like that happened to you specifically, but I mean, you're probably not the only one or only one of the few that just said, well, I'm going to do this thing anyway. But yeah, there's sort of cultural limitations that um, don't serve women at all and don't serve men, I don't think either. Exactly. And that's the part we need to get past is stereotyping and labeling. Get away from the labels, get away from, you have to be, you're a woman, so be domesticated, be in the house. And that's the only place you should. I had people telling me that growing up. I had some people very close to me, family members, you know, put down the basketball, focus on this. You need to focus on that. You need to be able to take care of your husband. That is what you were born to do. And I was like, no, I wasn't. Right. Who's going to take care of your kids if you're out here doing your thing, right? Yeah. No, I wasn't. Mom doesn't do that. And my mom be like, I don't. Do not listen to that fool. And I'd be like, my mom was strong. Don't listen to that, babe. Keep it moving. She played a big role in my belief system of being able to do anything. And I just be like, well, I'm taking my clothes to the cleaners. I suggest they do the same. I'm not ironing anybody's clothes all day. I don't like ironing. If I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. We can hire someone. We can work together on this. But that's my personal choice. I know how to do all of those things. Sometimes I do have to iron my own stuff, but I do not want that to be who I am. And there's a big difference in the two. And I would always stand for that. Like, I know how to do it. I know how to cook and I know how to clean and cook better than most people from scratch. Most people don't know I know how to cook like that. And you probably don't want to tell most people because that will then become your role. My college teammates know I will cook for them all the time. Like whatever they wanted, I just make it from scratch. So they know. But once I got to the pros, I stopped telling people because they would expect me to do that all the time. And I didn't want to. But I just got away from that. And that article just, it really infuriated me in ways. And my coach was, she just looked at me and was laughing. And I was like, why are you laughing? Like right now, this is not funny. Like I'm in tears over here. And she said, you have millions of people congratulating you. You're in every magazine. You're all over the TV, ESPN. She said, Michelle, women don't even get put on ESPN. You're on there. You're like in the top 10 for the year, not for the day. She was like, and you're going to let one person change that and make you feel the way you feel? One person can say something and it affects you that much? Toughen up, buttercup. You just went pro. And I was just looking at it and I was like, oh, wow, I guess she's right. I did just get all the exposure. I, and she was like, change your point of view. That's why I made you change your major. And she told me, she's like, you should go into psychology. And it's just funny. She was like, figure yourself out because I can't. And I was just like, rude. <laughs> but she was actually a master psychologist. She knew I would be challenged by that and I would prove her wrong. <laughs> and so, and I did. I proved her wrong, changed my degree. And come to find out we're just alike, same profile, we act the same. And that's why we will bump heads all the time. That's oh, so interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, it's good to have someone really check you on your level. 
She would check me all the time. If you think you're going to have an ego, Pat Summit will get rid of it for you. <laughs> she will humble you. And I needed that. I really did need it because I was getting all these people telling me how great I was. And that's one of the things that can cause people to really forget their purpose and what they came to do and what it takes to stay there quickly. Well, you're so young when you get those accolades and you just cognitively don't really know where to put that information without someone to really help you corral that. Exactly. My mom's sick. I'm away from home. You need that person that's going to always have your back. And she would sit there and talk to my mom all the time on the phone and just have conversations with my mom all the time. I would call the bus. She'd be like, I already talked to Pat, da 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 And when she starts quoting Pat, I was just over it. I was like, I'm not calling you anymore. Like, I'm not a buttercup and I am tough. <laughs> I had that type of respect. All of your fans show you watching a dunk is amazing and incredibly satisfying to watch and exhilarating. But what does it actually feel like to dunk? Wow. You really do feel like you're flying. I think the best part is not actually the dunk. It's the reaction. Seeing the entire arena on their feet, people crying. Like there will be some people who just be crying and they'll be like, oh my God, I'm here. I'm actually here in the arena. They just put it back on Instagram the other day. I put it in my story and they, it was the one of the dunks and the reaction from the crowd. It took me back to the moment. My teammates were jumping and screaming like they had dunked. For me, it was the reaction that everyone gave that was so positive that, look, guys, my mom's been telling me for years, now do y'all get it? You can do anything. Mm -hmm. It's like at that moment, everyone feels that. They, everyone feels that sort of collective, like, yes, we can. And everyone knows how hard it is. Even your opposing players are standing there with all in their face with huge smiles. I mean, it's like, it was really just this collective celebration and jubilation. I can understand how that must be addictive. <laughs> it was fun. And we, Hawaii was the first one. That was amazing. And to get phone calls from people, crazy. Yeah. So what did that open up for you? The pros. I got to go professional. It opened up overseas basketball where I could go and make even more money. So I would play year round to make sure, okay, I'm going to, Average career is three to five years, men or women. And most people don't realize that. We see the athletes who play, like I played 16 years between the WNBA and overseas. And I tell people that wasn't easy. But people would look at me and go, well, if you played that long, I could play that long. And I'm like, okay, okay try to tell you. And then when, when they're getting their stuff out of their locker and they're gone, you realize you're only here for a moment. You have to play like today's your last day. And you got to put everything on the line. And when my mother was sick, that's how I showed up every day. If I don't show up, my family may not be taken care of. I remember she she had um, some medicine that cost 500 bucks and it wasn't covered by her insurance. So she just wouldn't get it. And I remember how terrible I felt. Like, how can someone need medicine, have insurance and not be able to get it? It was the most heartbreaking thing in the world. And then it was the best thing in the world to be able to say, mom, there's a card a little debit card in your drawer. It will always have two grand on it. Took all of her bills and put them on auto pay. She's trying to, she's walking around to the businesses and offices. I haven't gotten my bills. Why won't y'all send me my bills? It's been paid, Miss Snow. <laughs> I didn't pay it. How did it get paid? No, I don't want my lights cut off. I need to pay my bills. It was the best feeling in the world to know she was okay, that she had money to spend. They could go out to eat. Do you know I came home a year later and the money is still sitting there in the drawer? And she's like, that's not my money. I have a job. And I said, yeah, pry before destruction. Let it go, boo-boo. Uh, and I'm like, mom, it's okay. Like, I have plenty of money now. We're good. And it, it was interesting because it took her a while to allow me to help her and to be okay with it. And I was like, mom, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. But then to not have someone who takes advantage of it either. So what was that experience for you when you went pro and you started playing overseas. Like, why did you do that? And you know, what of that actually is reflecting the inequity in payment from you know, the WNBA versus the NBA? Man, that's a big difference. But for me, I wasn't, it wasn't about comparing. It's, I'm going to take advantage of what I have. When the opportunity comes, we can talk about it. But I came in as a rookie making 33000 a year. And most people, that's 
before taxes. And then I went overseas and I got fired. So I'm making 10000 a month. I get fired. What happened? Well, I told them I wanted to try for the Olympic team. And they were like, well, our season is more important. We're paying you. And one thing I will never be is a $40 million slave. I don't care if you're paying me a dollar or $10. You do not control me. And I am adamant about that. I've lost opportunities because of that. I'm okay with that. So you weren't willing to be owned, quote unquote. You wanted to try out for the Olympics. And where were you? I was in Israel. And I decided I was going to go. And I left and I went to play on the Olympic team. They fired me. You got to remember now, I'm devastated because, oh my goodness, no money coming in. How am I going to take care of my family? I got to figure this out. And I just got fired my first year out the door. A guy tells me he wants me to come to Russia. I go, no way. Not interested. I'll go get a job. He says, check your bank account. (laughs) $70,000 signing bonus. I was making more in a month than people make in four or five years. He took care of me. I ended up going to Korea after that, making six figures a month. Came back to Russia, making six figures a month. So now I'm stockpiling and my family's okay. And not only did he do all of that, I was so thankful and grateful for that opportunity that I did whatever I could. We ended up going all the way to the final four that year. That's the world final four against every country, not every team in the U.S., every country. And we're in the final four. In the first half, I had 18 points and 18 rebounds. Pat would always tell us in the final four, everybody's watching. Whether you show up or whether you don't show up, everybody's watching. You have to show up. This means I'm playing for next season and next year. And so I want to take full advantage of it. And I want to make sure everyone knew my name. I just took it as a personal assignment. You have to be so focused, no partying, nothing's more important than getting through this opportunity and making sure you get signed for the following season. From there, I could pick and choose my job in the country I wanted to play in. And it was just a matter of how much money you want to make, where do you want to live, where do you want to go? I ended up, that took me to Spain, Italy, Korea. I've been all over (laughs) the place. It's been an amazing journey. And I could talk to my mom. I would always have my earpiece in talking to my mom because she couldn't sleep with the medicine and everything. And I just tell her all about the adventures. And she'd tell me about being in the military and traveling, things to watch out for. That's the best feeling in the world to know everything was going to be okay. And then I just started putting money away. One of my uncles, live on 20%, save 80%. He was like, they give you a car. They give you housing. The WNBA does the same. You have no reason to spend money. And then he's like, now start looking at opportunities. Max out your 401k. Make sure you're looking at real estate. And he was starting to build his real estate empire and had went from living in the projects to $2 million worth of property. And I started following that same blueprint. How'd you do your business plan? How'd you do your marketing plan? How'd you do this? And that kind of set me up for becoming a businesswoman and finding other opportunities and ways to say if I get hurt, which I did. I broke my foot three weeks before the Olympics and missed out on that opportunity. Was out for a year and a half with no income. That money goes away fast because you got four younger siblings all in college and we know how expensive that is. And I realized how quickly money can go like that. When you don't have anything coming in, your savings can go pretty fast. And it just taught me, okay, I need to find passive streams of income. I need to understand how that works. And that will give me time and financial freedom. And that has always been my goal, time and financial freedom. When we spoke earlier, you were really clear and articulate about the ways in which living abroad influenced you and just sort of your mindset. Can you speak to that? There are so many things that taught me. Yeah. Wow. Let's see. I remember how in certain countries, women were treated as property. And I knew what that felt like from growing up. And we would have those conversations. And they'd be like, wow, it's so inspiring hearing your story and where you are now and how you chose not to believe those things. I think people can label you all they want. It's up to you whether you believe it or not. I remember thinking, I don't care if you grow up in the projects in the U.S., you have it so much better than some people overseas. I've seen kids with no shoes and their underwear begging for food. I could be sitting at a restaurant and they'll come up and ask for, for my food and they don't have a jacket on. It's cold outside. I just remember thinking there are so many opportunities that we think are not available to us that are right there. Mm -hmm. 
but you're going to have to work and you're going to have to try to find them. I also understood from talking to different cultures and different people, there's so many people that are willing to help. But you have to be open-minded enough to have the conversation and to see them because we're all connected. We all have our struggles. We all have a sad story. So do not advertise yours as though it is bigger or worse than anyone else's. It's not. And when you begin to understand that and empathize with other people, doors will open. I could be sitting outside sometimes having lunch and I I go to lunch by myself. I don't care. And people will just come up and have conversations. I have three billionaire mentors. One was an owner of one of my teams. One was Michael Jordan, who was the GM in Washington while I was an intern in college. And then one was a lawyer, the guy that sued um, the tobacco companies and became a billionaire from that. Fred Levin, we lost him earlier this year, but he was in my hometown. Huge fan. I didn't even know. I was like, this dude doesn't know my name. Everything about me. And then as I began to come back as an older adult, I started going to his house and just sitting there and listening. And he would just tell me like, Michelle, I'm a Jew. I grew up just like Black people did in the South. I wasn't accepted. I wasn't, I understand exactly. And we started having that conversation. And this it's the same conversation I'm having overseas in all these different countries. In Korea, where a woman can't look a man in the face, and I'm talking to the coach like, coach, da 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 and I'm looking him in the face, blah, blah, blah. A woman does that, she's going to get slapped. And I was like, listen, if you want me here, you can never do that in front of me. You can never do that, period. It's unacceptable. I can't tolerate it. And I cannot be in a place where that happens. And it was interesting because you saw the dynamics change and having those conversations with the players and learning. Like even I've been playing against like scrimmaging against the men's team in Korea and a guy couldn't guard me. His coach calls a timeout and punches him. The boy flies to the ground. I immediately go over. What the hell is wrong with you? What is this a kid? He's in high school. You can't possibly expect him to guard me. You're a woman. And you hear it again. You hear it again. And he makes him get up and punches him again. I go over to my coach. My coach had to go over and stop it. And he's like, do you realize like this is an American? We never, you can't act like this in front of America. They're going to talk. It's going to get out. Like you can't do that. And I have been talking about it ever since because it needs to stop. It's unacceptable in sports. And as a grown man, there are better ways to handle that. He's a kid. That's a young boy. I stormed out of the gym. I said, game over. I'm done. I'll never scrimmage his team or anyone else like this again. And we, and I was just like, I just have a no tolerance for it. And I'm willing to lose my job for things that I stand for and I believe. And that's why a lot of people, a lot of opportunities go over my head or go past me because they can't control me. And I go, well, if you want to control me, that wasn't the right opportunity for me anyway. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the one. If you want to collaborate, we can do that. Yeah. So with some mentors like that and allies, three pretty influential ones. What did that teach you about being an ally and a mentor? You have to do it. For me, I used to write that in my journal as a kid. That's the crazy part. I would always write, like, dear God, if you if you help me and if I'm I'm successful, I will go back and get more people. I will figure out how to do that, which was very difficult because I'm an introvert, although I look like an extrovert probably right now. I had to learn how to communicate. My mother was sick, so I went from school to the gym straight home. I had no social skills. I wouldn't look people in the eye. I would just kind of stare down at the floor, and my college coach would make me stand in front of everyone and say the grace or speak before the games. She forced it out of me until I just, I would have those huge sweat pockets. I would be shaking. I was scared. And she would always just force me to keep doing it. I could not stand her for it. I couldn't stand her guts. And then one day I just took the microphone and started talking. And she was like, oh, you're finally there. Like she was always so sarcastic with it. It used to drive me nuts. And I realized she was going to make me keep doing it until I just didn't care anymore. And at that point, I was comfortable being uncomfortable. It taught me that by sharing that with other people, because some people look at me and they think, I'd say, don't look at the finished product, Doug. And I'm still a work in progress. Don't look at me now and think you know. I grew up in a trailer park. I grew up very difficult with holes in my shoes. I would walk around and slide my feet because the hole in my shoe is the size of a quarter. And people could see it. I didn't have any name brands. My mom sold our clothes. I would get beat up and bullied at school because my clothes weren't name brand. And so all of these things that people are dealing with, I've had to deal with them from chauvinistic ways to just being poor, 
to figuring out how you're going to eat every day and things like that. Getting your your schoolwork done while sitting in dialysis with your mom, driving at 13 so you could get it to the hospital. There was no one else to do it. There's so many things I had to learn and overcome, and I didn't have the luxury of being afraid. I just had to freaking do it. And I think taking the equation of being able to be afraid forced me to just say, I got to figure this out. I just got to figure it out. And it's showing other people that don't focus on what you need to do. Know what you need to do, but don't focus on that. Focus on how will I do it? How is the most important question you can ever ask? It's not, okay, I got all these bills I need to figure out. What am I going to do to get $2,000? Why do I owe $2,000? How am I going to do it? Fail something? Can I go? What in the house don't I need that I can live without? You figure it out real quick. It teaches you perseverance and determination. And if you develop those two skills and you learn to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations, I was in college and I would walk in and people would laugh at the clothes I had on or laugh because I had on somebody else's dress clothes because I didn't have any. And my basketball sneakers, which were orange and white high tops with black pants and a white shirt. That's all I had. That's all I had. And they would tease me or they say they were going to the mall. I wouldn't go. I have no money. My parents can't send me money to go shopping. Like that's not a luxury for me. It's all those hard things that teach me. And I used to say in my journal, if I ever become successful, I want to help others. I'm never going to tell someone I won't help them. I will help anyone with their dream. But I will tell you this, I have no tolerance if you're not willing to do the work. None. And I've adopted kind of my coach's philosophy. Oh, either you go do step one or you don't, but don't come back and bother me until it's done. Because what you're not going to do is waste my time talking my ear off. Yeah. And how do you mentor people now? Now I do it through business. I'm an orator, so I do a lot of speaking engagements. I'm actually, I have EntreCon, which is one of the biggest events coming up for businesses in November, November 17th. Actually, it's going to be in my hometown too, Pensacola. So that's going to be fun. I'm a business advisor. So I have a group every month we meet and we work through the things that are going on in their business and how they can get started, what the next step is for them and giving them resources. And on my website, I have different uh, curriculums and things that people can use. And I'm always available. So on social media, on my website, people will reach out and say they need something. And outside of real estate, the other thing that I put over a quarter of a million dollars in was I licensed everything I could get my hands on. Every book that a mentor told me to read, if I could license it, I did. If there was a course, and I, I take courses now, like I'm in a masterclass now for business strategies, learning how they did the political strategies for the Obama campaign. And so that was really interesting because everything that you learn teaches you something about business and you have to understand business if you want to be successful in life to me. So I always try to teach and I write a lot of curriculum when I'm overseas. Anything someone taught me, I'll create a video and teach others. So now when people come to me, I have over six terabytes on Dropbox. I think I have like two Dropbox accounts, the biggest accounts you can have full of videos, like pictures, so I can show people the process, curriculum, workbooks, reports. I get all of it. So either I create it or I license the rights to it, and I share that with others. So it sounds like a really entrepreneurial phase that you're in, in right now, just sort of flourishing and blossoming in all sorts of, of ways. Did you imagine you would be in corporate? I did, because as a kid, when we didn't have food to eat or we didn't have anything, I would take my lunch money and I would go to this lady's house. She sold penny candy and I would take the penny candy, buy 40 pieces, go to school, sell it for a nickel. So now I got my lunch money plus extra money. Next day, I would go and buy more. Then I would go to the dollar store, buy the 10 candy bars that you can get in a pack and you get it for a dollar. I'd sell them for a quarter. Next day, I'd go back and get two. And everyone would start calling me the candy man because I would start hustling to get stuff and to make sure we had our lunch money and things like that. Then it went to selling pickles because people where I'm from, they love pickles in the South. I would get those, bag them up. I didn't even realize I was scaling my business. No, no, no. You didn't give it all these terms. No, you just were doing what made a lot of sense. Yeah, I was just doing it. And it was like, it makes sense. How do, I, how do I make more money? How was always the question. This allowed me to kind of make sure my siblings were taken care of, make sure I had extra money for different things. And then we started mowing lawns, 10, 15 bucks each lawn. And you just start figuring out how to succeed. My coach didn't know I had a job in college. She figured it out my teammates. I mean, my teammates never told her either. They didn't tell her until 
one day after we lost the the championship game, everyone's at her house crying. And they're like, she's like, where's Michelle? And they're like, Michelle's at work. And like, everyone's like, yeah, Michelle's at work. Everybody knows Michelle's at work. And she's like, Michelle has a job? She's like, yeah, she got to send money home. Like, yeah, she's been working the whole time. And she was like, that kid, I always knew where my priorities were and what was important. So I knew that I was going to be a businesswoman. I always knew that. And another place that you are showing up is the podcast Across the Pond um, with James Scott. So tell us about that and what that platform is serving for you. Wow, it's, it's crazy. I didn't think I would be doing a podcast. I had a friend reach out and they were like, you know, my friend's doing a WNBA podcast. And I was like, they need one. Like somebody has to speak up and do and, and put the news out there, market women in a positive way and give them a fair chance at getting the exposure they need to be successful. And she was like, well, he's looking for a co-host. And I told him, you'd be a good fit. You guys should talk. And I was like, why would you tell him I would be a good co-host? <laughs> I was like, what? Where did that come from? And the funny part is me and him hit it off from the first show. And it sounds like we've been working together forever. And it's just one of those things where I'm like, well, you know what? You get your name out there. Keep your name out there because you're not playing anymore. So you still want to be able to keep your name out there. It gives you an opportunity to give back to the players now, not just youth and business people, but to the actual players that the league that gave you your opportunity. It's been a ton of fun, like hearing their stories, like how people had a similar upbringing to me, how some people had a totally different upbringing, but the getting the stories out there so that the fans can hear it so that the next generation hears it. And I go, this is fun. It's actually one of the highlights of, of my week. It is really fun to see another vehicle putting stories out there that is specifically amplifying women's voices and it's really fun to hear both of your voices on there. It's it's a nice back and forth. And you just started it this summer, didn't you? Just started this summer. And people go, it sounds like you've been doing this forever. And I'm like, I have no experience. There we go. <laughs> I don't know anything about <laughs> podcasting. I was like, I'm using the media training we got in college, you know, and in the pros. But I was like, no, I'm just, I'm really just letting people, giving them the stage to tell their story and asking the right questions so you get those stories out. Yeah, which is a fun part of the, the process from both sides. Are you game for a little speed round? Sure. All right. You mentioned this before, but are you an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert. But now I teeter-totter because I can go back and forth easy. You have both skills. Yes, I have both skills now. What are you most proud of? Being able to take care of my mother. Giving her that box of scholarships and her being able to come to the WNBA draft in New York. Amazing. Best feeling ever. What is something that people often get wrong about you? Wow, everything. Hmm. People will tell me I'm conceited. I'm not. I go confidence and conceit are very different. There's a difference. I still have doubts come up. I battle with them. That's why I meditate. But I'm not conceited. I don't walk in the room thinking anything is being handed to me. I don't think I'm entitled. But I'm like this morning, I was up at 3 a.m. And I go, no. The one thing my billionaire mentor taught me that won the tobacco case, his name is Fred Levin. He said. I was never the smartest in the room. Actually, I'm pretty, I'm pretty dumb, but I am the most prepared. And that's been my, my thing, be the most prepared. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing. I'm totally on board with you on that one. Are you a morning person or a night person? No, I'm a night owl, but I'm forcing myself to get up earlier because with workouts, we would have to get up at 5 a.m., run five miles. So I can get up early if I have to, or I can stay up late into the night until the sun comes up. You're versatile. You adapt. I have become very adaptable. And I think traveling kind of forced that out of me. I think it does. I think when you can't have a fixed time, when you either go to bed or wake up or do your workouts, you just are, you really make it work. <laughs> yeah. And you realize the only thing that's fixed is your mindset. Right. And I change from a fixed to a growth mindset. So I tell people that's not stuck in stone either. Do you have anything that you're reading right now that you'd like to share? Oh, let's see. I got my phone right here. I'm reading again, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which was pretty, it's a really good book. The Psychology of Money, Start With Why, Simon Sinek. I love that book. So I got like a bunch of them that I'm on here reading. Are you an audiobook listener? I've become an audiobook person because I, I can actually listen to a book on two now, 2X, so I can get through them pretty fast versus reading. It takes me a lot longer. Even though I speed read, it still takes me longer. But I'm a lover of traditional books. 
there's always going to be a library in my home. There are always going to be physical books there. I like that. All right. Last one. What are the top three places on your bucket list to go? Ooh. Singapore. Africa is number one. Absolutely number one. And then Malaysia. Huh. I think those would be my top three places I haven't been. And do you have a place specifically in Africa? I want to go all throughout. Like me and my daughter want to kind of backpack all throughout the continent. And I want her to be able to see also because I like her to get out of the country as well. So maybe when she graduates this next year, we'll go backpacking throughout Africa. I want to check out the beaches, but I want to do the safaris. We want to go and see like even the buildings where they held the slaves. I want her to see, feel and understand that. I know it'll be emotional, but I think she's mature enough to where she can handle it and I can have those conversations with her. And then we just use that to continue to create great friendships and relationships with other people. It sounds like you really have a a global identity. And I think passing that on is probably important to you. And you can really only do that by traveling. Yes. I want her to travel. And I also have to show her, you know, like, whoever you date, they better be able to treat you as good as mommy does. (laughs) So setting the standard and making sure she knows her worth. Because she's adopted. I adopted her. So she has certain things that she deals with, with abandonment and things like that. So I I always want to reiterate to her who she is. Yep. And you're there for her. Mm -hmm. No matter what she does, no matter how crazy. Hey, my mom did the same thing. My mom said, no matter what, (laughs) I'm going to love you no matter what. And I tell her the same thing. So Michelle, this has been so much fun. You know, this is a, a podcast where we celebrate the spirit of taking on challenges and reaching beyond the predetermined limitations and heights it's about passion and pursuing that passion. I'd love to hear if you have any closing thoughts, any last messages, motivation or inspiration or just anything to share about the metaphor of flight for you. Tomorrow's not promised. And I learned that watching my mom pass over 14 years slowly. And even though it's not promised, you may be here. Like she was sick, but I see some people who haven't done anything and they're the same They're in the same place they were a year ago, five years ago. That scares me to death. That scares me so much because life is short. And it doesn't mean traveling globally. It means getting out of your own city, going on a picnic, going to the beach, going to the museum and learning different things. Picking up a book. A book will take you anywhere. We all have dreams and sometimes we make excuses. Oh, I have the kids. Then create boundaries and make those kids give you 30 minutes of peace. Get up before they get up like I do. I had to get up earlier to get my my morning routine in so I could. We need that as women because we solve everyone's problems and we're there for everybody. And sometimes we are not there for ourselves. And I went through that, just giving, 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 and I crashed and I burned. And I had to make that, even if it's five, 10 minutes. I know a lot of us lock ourselves in the bathroom so that we can get that time. Make that time for yourself so that you can give to others. And whatever your purpose is, don't let tomorrow come and you haven't taken one step towards it. That could be as simple as doing a Google search and researching what's next and then how to do it. Don't let the day pass without doing that. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun and also very impactful. I think that what you've done and the model you are, the mentor you are, what you stand for and just sort of the energy that you have is is really beautiful and a gift to all of us. So thank you for being here today. Thank you guys for having me. It was fun. That was fun. What I love about this conversation is Michelle's energy and her awareness of how her core values have played out into decisions and actions throughout her life's journey. It is also true that Michelle chooses an allegiance to her moral compass over disappointing others. And I really admire that. What continues to sit with me is this quote from Michelle. You must decide who you will be, the fan, the cheerleader, or will you step onto the playing field of life and live fully? The decision is yours. Give that a minute to marinate. There is a lot to sink in with this conversation. I am grateful to Michelle for her openness and vulnerability and the gift of connection. These are conversations that I love to be in. I am always curious how this lands with you. Leave me a note in the reviews 
If this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. When you do take a minute to connect with us and leave a review, it helps our discoverability and deepens the impact of these conversations. Okay, so that's a wrap. You can find in our episode show notes, links to Michelle's website and other references. Oh, and something you won't want to miss. Did you hear about the challenge we're holding in October, Handstands on the Fly with Natanya Stamboli, founder of Yogi Flight School? It's a training in the form of a challenge because we have a hunch that when you take the first steps to learning to turn your perspective upside down, your life will change even just a little bit. So follow the link and sign up. Our website, whenwomenfly.com, has it all. Okay, have a great week. I send you love and light and strength and flight, however that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.